The topic of this evening's talk is spiritual urgency. The Pali word for this is sambega. So what are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you here to this particular period of practice? So beginning our evening with a few questions, some of which have probably visited your mind and heart, and questions that humans have felt and asked forever, forever and ever, really, regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart, the deep questions and yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is death? Its significance, its meaning. Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to be really, truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully, peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and difficulties in this changing world? With all of the challenges within me and those all around me? What is it that brings me to practice? And again, why am I here in this retreat? Our practice isn't about getting caught up um, in mulling or stewing over these questions. But rather, these questions can be taken in as a motivating force as an inspiration towards really connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. So as I've already mentioned, this evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken, with the Pali term being samvega, which is quite often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually, it's a term that's somewhat difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force or the energy of samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And the classical text goes on to say that samvega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself. By what should move one? Followed then by the systematic effort of one so moved. 
So samvega is the urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken. And it's important to note here that it's an energy that's not at all fraught with a kind of tense or frantic or obsessive quality. But rather it's a quality of mind and heart that's ver- that very often comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws, understanding the way of things, some degree of understanding how it is. And so I'd like to look for a few moments uh, at, at this, for a few moments with you. For some of you, some Vega may have been sensed or maybe first felt as the endlessness of the round and round and round in daily life. Others of you may have felt a certain urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of impermanence, in sensing, seeing, and knowing mental and physical phenomena continuously arising and disappearing in its gross and maybe also some of its subtler forms. And the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. The death of someone close to us in our life can certainly move the heart towards an urgency to practice, towards an urgency to awaken, for instance. And for some of you, this urgency, this samvega energy, might be experienced through feeling the enormity or even the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges in life. The suffering in life from this particular perspective. In general, or maybe specifically through these experiences in your own life. For some, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long, accustomed, or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing and maybe directly experiencing bias or judgment and prejudice in relationship to race or culture or economic circumstances or gender or age or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain, you might have also experienced a vague, or maybe not so vague, sense that it doesn't really have to be this way. There's another way, and an urge to move towards this potential other way. When some vega first stirs us, It might be an emotional state that could be somewhat difficult or 
disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. One of the wonderful attributes of the stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to connect to. I think that it's important to recognize and to acknowledge that continuing all along the way of our practice, for each of us sitting here in this room, Samvega is really an essential and motivating energy of successful practice all through our years of practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by various physical occurrences right now, uh, particularly regarding aging being a primary inspiration for me in relationship to my practice. I'm also moved by phenomena and inspired, we could say, by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I might be directly involved with in some way or other, or happenings that I really just simply am an observer of such as the huge misunderstandings and confusions that are currently occurring in this world and the often quite violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this. Samvega is really the movement of the heart, an inner response both within our formal meditation practice as well as outside of our formal meditation times. And for me, it's the movement of my heart to let go deeper and deeper into my practice. It's really this flavor of Samvega that stirs and moves me again and again towards letting go towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it might sometimes be experienced as an ardency, as an inspired heart-mind. We could say, as a passion for spiritual practice. Something that I'm sure some of you, if not all of you, have felt at times. And at least, in part, maybe what brought you here to the Forest Refuge. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves in and inspires me. And I think it's pretty safe to say that this is true for all of the people 
that I've had the honor to teach with. It's really one of the wonderful aspects for all of us here together right now. Being in a community such as this, it's one of the wonderful aspects in a practice community, even if it's just for a short while. We really do move and inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So, even more specifically, from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what, along the way of our practice, keeps urging us, keeps moving us towards sustaining and towards deepening our practice? There's a beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers. While being driven in his chariot through this royal city, uh, after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world, this account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical, considering that these four heavenly messengers, as they're called, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth-seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Maybe these, very four, these four very common events of life have always been and will forever be undeniable aspects of life for all living beings. It's not a maybe, it's a given. So considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred before for him and to such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches, the ease, and the comfort of his existence, to search for the truth, to search for the nature of life, the true nature of life. He was, it seems, quite profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering that he witnessed as he took in these four very common events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and 
urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and very familiar habits of his life up until that point. And isn't it really the same for us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, that we've reacted. Maybe reacted by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways by where and how we spend our time. We've reacted by what we do to the various manifestations of our aging bodies. We've reacted, or maybe even, maybe even by pretending, or maybe even believing, that something else is happening. Until somehow, at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that instead of reacting, we respond. And we, in fact, respond in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness, anguish, or fear, or tightly contracted feelings of attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the natural occurrences of life. Our closest surroundings are full of stirring things. Stirring in the sense of samvega. And if we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that in fact render our vision dull and our heart, at least to some degree, insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen in relationship to the Buddha's teachings and practices. We certainly may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual, emotional, or spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and practices. But at times, even this impetus can lose its freshness and its impelling force as maybe some of you have experienced. So, what's the remedy? The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practice by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us which, if we really look carefully, constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths. 
in ever new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is, which, simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round and round and constantly changing nature of daily life. And if we continue to look carefully into the fullness of life within us and surrounding us, we begin to see, to sense, and to see the cause, the origin, if you will, of this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, which is the second of the four noble truths, which again, put simply, is essentially is a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the third noble truth, the truth that that in fact there is a potential end to this suffering, a solution to this predicament, the solution being to not cling, but rather to see things utterly clearly, to see things utterly clearly and simply be with them as they are. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path, the path of practice offered by the Buddha. That, in fact, each of you are engaged in walking along at your own pace, right here, right now, in this very life. And in this very retreat. As any of you may have experienced, sometimes quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up. So, for instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear, anger, grief, or yearning, or clinging, and the self-identification that's embedded in each of these habitual reactive habit patterns. Or insight, wisdom, might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long-accustomed sight of maybe some manifestation of deep poverty, or maybe in relationship to a weeping child, or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with, or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical and mental illness of a loved one or one's own illness or bodily discomfort. 
or myriad other flavors of our experience as human beings. With any of these experiences having the power, we could say, to startle us, meaning to promote a reflective response and to stir a sense of urgency in our resolve to sincerely and deeply practice this path that leaves, leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing our own experience of body and mind directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impermanent nature of things. Something that is, of course, very available for each of us all of the time. So for instance, a moment or successive moments of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly changing nature of bodily sensations or mental states or a moment of knowing that it's all impersonal. It's all anatta. Mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally arising, changing, and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions. With these moments of sensing, seeing, and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, to go deeper towards the ending of suffering. Or, depending on one's particular circumstances, to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia. Each of us have many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And of course, many stories within our life as a whole Stories that often exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of samvega. And it's often part of what I hear from students during practice interviews. There are a number of really wonderful um, stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency that stirring being done by the Buddha himself, or the stirring being done by one of the arhants, one of the enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas. And for those of you that may not know, devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths of time in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, who aren't yet enlightened, 
aren't yet completely free of suffering. There's a section of short uh, suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas <coughs> approach certain bhikkhus, certain monks, and um, who are practicing in those woodland, particular woodland thickets. So I'd like to share a, a few of these encounters. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for his day of practice. But all the while, he kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency for him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man the desire for people. Then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. Meaning not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things, lust for food, lust for various objects and various experiences. And the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of that way of the good. Hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust, so a bhikkhu, a yogi, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next uh, dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's parinibbana, after his death. And his closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain arhanship, to attain full enlightenment before the first Buddhist council convened, which was in fact scheduled to begin during the next rain, uh, rains retreat. Ananda had gone uh, to the Kosala country and entered into a forest abode to meditate. But when the people in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them on the law of impermanence. The forest-dwelling deva there, aware that the upcoming Buddhist council could succeed only if Ananda attended as an arahant, came to provoke and to inspire him to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. 
having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart. Meditate, Gotama. Now because uh, Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name as Gotama. So the deva said, meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What with all this hullabaloo, what will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. I picked this particular dialogue because, though of course we're not uh, in the same position as Ananda was, um, we certainly often get caught up, we often get quite seduced in the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and internally, and neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things, go for the hullabaloo. To me, this little verse really beautifully and clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Not to the neglect of what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. So another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhuni was dwelling in Visali, in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Visali. Then that bhikkhuni, lamenting as she heard the clamor of instruments, gongs and music coming from Visali, recited this verse. And this is the bhikkhuni speaking, or thinking. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Feeling so sorry for herself. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni and desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached her and addressed her in verse. And this is the deva speaking. As you dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state. A forest dweller, subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content, many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then that bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continually continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming, as well as potent thoughts of sensuality as he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva, who also inhabited this same woodland, out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega in him, spoke these verses to the bhikkhu. Verse 
because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning having relinquished, having let go of attending to things as permanent as self and as desirable because they're pleasurable, having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully, said the, said the deva, meaning attending to their true nature, attending to things in their true nature, their true char- characteristics with a careful attention. In Pali, the word is yanisomanasikara, pretending to them as impermanent, attending to things as not-self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. So the deva says, you should reflect carefully. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, and in this case, the teacher is the Buddha, on the Dhamma, on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. Then, when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse that I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who, after returning from his alms round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would then go down to a nearby pond, into it, walk into it, and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And this is the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, This is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the davis says, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him. But it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's lip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And then the bhikkhu responds to the deva. Surely, spirit, you understand me. You have compassion for me. 
Please, O oh Spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the Deva responds, which when I first read this was quite a surprise response. The Deva says, We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, Bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that Bhikkhu, stirred up by that Deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then, 2,600 years ago and now, devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, it seems that, in fact, things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses time and culture. The teachings are really timeless. The solutions that the Buddha offered to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy. We experience a release of energy and courage that helps the development and blossoming of faith and confidence. Each of these qualities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence are essential in helping us to break through what for some of you might be some degree of sense of timidity or maybe hesitation or maybe fear or doubt, or maybe some degree of complacency. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. In speaking to a group of disciples, in one sutta he says, rouse yourselves. Sit up. What good is there in sleeping, meaning the sleep of ignorance and delusion? What good is there in sleeping? For those afflicted by disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by disease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourself, sit up. Resolutely train yourselves to attain peace. And the Buddha goes on. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity, he says. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, confusion, and anguish. And he goes on to say, negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. 
The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude, we could say, towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, the ground of samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment to moment observation of the cycle and to really be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is a gift that confirms some of our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the cause of suffering isn't out there. It's not coming from some outside experience or some outside being, but that in fact it's coming from in here, in here, in the craving and clinging and fear that's present in our own mind. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, and certainly coming directly from his own experience, and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to suffering there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, noble qualities of heart, moral, ethical responsibility, sila and pali, concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy and happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, confidence. All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency that at one point led us to look for a solution to our predicament. So our predicament actually has a practical solution, a solution that is really within the power of every human being, and a solution that many of you have begun to have a growing faith in and some degree of experience with, possibly in part through reading and studying the many stories, the many teachings, within the enormous breadth of the Buddhist discourses 
but really most importantly that you've come to know out of your own direct experience through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is also the the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, as it develops and as it deepens, for many of us, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story that I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. A story that, in fact, I found to be very inspiring and that invoked a spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many years ago. And that continues to move me every time I read it. These are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into silent stillness, as he was emerging from beneath an enormous, shaggy, wild rosebush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree tree trunk. Our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut, It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It felled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. This was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing, and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleadings, but he didn't return. I tell you I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes, but the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live 
I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked, and ingested directly like blood pulsed through my gut, through a ju- into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In light of Samvega, it feels appropriate now to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death. Words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of Samvega in them, to exhort them to really keep going along the path. This particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from the Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta. And I found it to be quite inspiring. <clears throat> o bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. 
You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or non-moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And in closing this evening's talk, we come back around to our opening questions. As Mary Oliver in her own way poses them in her poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down in the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And let's sit together quietly for just a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.